Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Abdul El Saeed burst into the political consciousness in 2018 when he ran a insurgent campaign for governor of Michigan. He lost, but established himself as a prominent spokesperson for the progressive left, the innovative former health commissioner of the city of Detroit. El Said has been a fellow at the Institute of Politics this past quarter and is an active surrogate for Bernie Sanders in his race for president. His new book, Healing Politics, A Doctor's Journey into the Heart of Our Political Epidemic, will be released on March 31st. El Said has the most extraordinary personal story, and we sat down to talk about that, as well as the presidential race. Here's that conversation. Abdul El Said, so good to be with you. First of all, let me thank you for being a fellow here at the Institute of Politics this spring. You've been lighting the place up with your uh, energy, and I appreciate that. You've got an amazing story, and I want to spend some time on it. Your full name is Abdul Rahman Mohammed El Said, <laughs> which is common name uh, if you're from Egypt, and your father was from Egypt. That's right. I always say it's the uh, it's the Mike Smith of, of Egypt. Um, <laughs> Uh, I remember a story one time I was uh, <laughs> I was getting on an airplane um, and, you know, in Egypt, sometimes the security is a little bit lax. So you have to tell them what your name is uh, before you step in for security. They need to make sure you're registered on a plane. And uh, I told him my name was Abdurrahman Sayyid. And uh, he looks at me he's like, which one, where are you on this list? And he's showing me the list of everyone else on the plane. I was like, you probably shouldn't be showing me that list. But there are six A El Sayyids. Uh, and I looked at it for a second. I said, I'm the second one. He said, are you sure? I said, absolutely sure. <laughs> that was yeah. good enough. Tell me about your dad. Yeah. My father was the eldest of six, uh, born and raised in a pretty low-income, working-class part of Alexandria, Egypt. And his mother is still to this day is the wisest, most intelligent person I've ever met. Uh, but she never got to go to school. She was illiterate. Um, raised six kids. He was the eldest. Uh, had an additional two who died before their first birthday. And he would spend most of his days helping his father with the vegetable saw where he sold vegetables. He sort of knew that his pathway beyond that life meant that he was going to have to study. And so they had one bedroom. Uh, and I remember going back in the summers and, and hanging out with my, my grandmother and grandfather in that one bedroom apartment. And his siblings would you know, usually go to sleep by, by nine o'clock. And that would be the time that he'd finish with his chores. So he'd study uh, on the rooftop of that building by, by the light of a lamp across the street. And I remember um, specifically being 13 years old and and my, my grandfather showed me that this is the place where my dad would study. And I saw the, that lamp and I can imagine my dad sort of sitting there after a long day between school and selling vegetables, in effect studying the future I got to live uh, into existence. And so, you know, profoundly grateful for him. Um, and he, he got to come to the United States, got an engineering fellowship to study at Wayne State University. And it was either, he was in Detroit or Bayreuth, Germany, and he really wanted to, to, to come to Detroit. And, and that's how my, my family got here. You mentioned you, you went back in the, in the summers. Do you still go back? I haven't been back um, for about 10 years. The, the unrest there, my father was uh, a pretty big agitator for democracy. And, um, you know, I went back quite a bit when I was a child. The first time, in fact, that I went back, I went back alone. Uh, we went with a family that had gone and my dad was a little bit worried about going back. Um, and with some cajoling, he came back, I think, three years after that. But um, but I haven't been back in, in 10 years. I, I miss a lot of my Still family. Still have there. relatives there? Most of my family on both sides uh, are there. And, uh, you know, it, it's just the, the, the political situation there uh, isn't quite Yeah, consistent. I want to ask you about that. You know, I think about it a lot now because all of a sudden, 
our democratic institutions are very much in contention, uh, something that you wouldn't imagine, you know, and we're thinking more about them. And you have deep roots in a place where the yearning for democracy expressed itself and then was crushed. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. The first time I came to appreciate the contrast between what we have here in the United States and what was in Egypt under the Mubarak regime, and this regime arguably is far worse. I was, I was, I was 13, and uh, my grandmother gave me a warning. She said, you know, you can't say anything about politics here. And I've always been a bit of an iconoclast. So the next time we went down to the market to you know, pick up our daily food, I used all the choicest words that my cousins had taught me uh, <laughs> about uh, Mubarak. And, uh, you know, my grandmother goes nuts, pulls me back into the, you know, into the shade and then up upstairs and, and gives me a good scolding. And I was like, see, nothing happened. We're fine. Um, until later on that evening. And uh, we got a knock at the door and it was a group of plainclothes cops. And, you know, they asked, where, where is that boy who was saying those things? And my grandfather, I mean, he sold vegetables his whole life. One of the toughest guys you'll ever meet. I have, I think I'd never seen him afraid um, until that point. And he said, go get your passport. And so I, I brought my passport and he almost like held it up like a talisman. And he was like, you know, he's American, you can't do anything to him. And they left. We don't appreciate that our norms, our mores, our democracy, it's not bolted tight. It exists because people respect those norms and mores. And what we're starting to see, especially after the vote to, to acquit, is a president who very wantonly is violating those norms, whether it's, you know, creating a culture of cronyism whether it is in a very directed way, trying to remove what he thinks are his opponents. You know, lo and behold, the reason he got impeached in the first place. And our democracy exists in our minds and our choices. And you see what's possibly lost when you grow up back and forth between a society that's never had it. And so what we have to protect is the kind of society where, where all of us have a voice and can say what we choose and believe in our rights to, to choose who our leaders are uh, and hold them accountable. And when that goes away, the reverberations aren't, they're not just government that suffers. The reverberations in terms of the kind of flourishing in society, those go deep. And I worry a lot about the pathway that we're on right now. Your mom was a nurse, a practitioner, and your parents split up at an early age, and your father remarried. And he, he remarried a woman from rural Michigan, Presbyterian. You had a very interesting upbringing, That's right. sort of a, a, an amalgam of cultures. I guess Thanksgiving dinner was in, an interesting event at your, at your home. Yeah. My mother actually trained as a doctor in Egypt, and when she came here, you know, had kids and, uh, and decided to go all the way back through education and become a nurse. Um, but I was raised by my stepmom, uh, Jackie. Why did you, why were you raised by your uh, stepmom and your father rather than your mom? Yeah, my mom had moved abroad. And, uh, and so my family decided that it was probably best that I, I grow up here in the States. Um, and so I did. Um, and so I was raised by my father and my stepmom. Did you keep in touch with your mom? I did. I did. You know, we didn't see each other all that much back in, back in the day. You didn't have, you know, the tools that we have now, FaceTime, Skype, but, uh, but I'd see her at least once or twice a year. Um, and then when she moved back to the United States, actually my stepfather unfortunately passed away, uh, when, um, I've had two siblings, two sisters on that side uh, when they were younger. And so she moved back to the States and I saw her quite a bit more regularly then. But my stepmom, Jackie, who raised me, you know, her family comes from a very different background than, than my father and mother uh, do. And so, you know, we'd have this whiplash. I told you about going to Egypt in the summers, but I'd come back, you know, midway through the summer and hang out in a place called Montcalm County, Michigan, where my family's had cottages on a lake for, you know, the past 60 years. And, you know, we talk about code switching, the, the ability to talk to different groups of people from, you know, within their own cultural perspective. And you learn very quickly how to think about yourself and how to engage is, is almost always the consummate outsider. Because, you know, as a, even as a full-blooded Egyptian kid, when I went to Egypt, I was always the American. Um, you know, I didn't walk quite right. I didn't dress quite right. And then I'd come, come back and obviously my cultural identity, the color of my skin, my name marked me. And so you're, you're constantly an outsider, but also constantly finding those moments of humanity, those shared experiences and norms that allow you to be a part of something. And um, being able to grow up in a family like that, where, uh, you know, even just the exercise of living our daily life was an exercise in cultural engagement and, and translation, um, I think taught me a lot about, about what makes us 
whole and what makes us human and finding those moments of, of, of shared experience and meaning uh, that, you know, that are the, the, the substrate of building real relationships. And so I really valued that. I didn't appreciate I was having it and I was getting that experience so early. But, um, you know, as I grew older and especially in, in the work in, in healthcare, where it's so much about finding uh, a shared space with somebody, um, you know, I found that, that my life had, had really uh, prepared me well for, for that kind of work. You know, we live in this world now where we can uh, isolate ourselves in these kind of virtual reality silos and, you know, surround ourselves by information that's comforting, people who are comforting and the same. You, by dint of living in really two different worlds, probably have a different perspective. And when you talk, you're very much an, uh, a strong voice in the kind of activist left community do you find yourself fighting stereotypes of people on the other side of that silo? One of the the probably if there's if there's any silver lining in the cloud of having been stereotyped my entire life is that I've learned not to believe the stereotypes. And so I think there's a space always for finding what makes somebody tick and in who they are and what they believe. Um, and you'll find even when you disagree on 99% of things there is something about your shared experience just being human that can create a space for connection. And I found that, and it's hard to occupy, especially in a moment where you know we think that the world is, is transacted in 280 character tweets. Um, but you can, at the same time, hold a conversation with somebody that says, I deeply disagree with you, but I still value you and love you. And I, I want you to be happy, but I just think that the pathway for that isn't what you think it is. And that's an uncomfortable place to sit. Um, and it's a lot easier to uh, to take our um, our frustrations and just generalize them out and and, and fail to see the humanity in, in the people uh, on the other side. Yeah, you know, um, I have a place in rural Michigan, and I have neighbors who were both uh, Obama supporters and Trump supporters. They don't fit these sort of caricatures that you often hear from my neighbors in Chicago, for example, about. Trump supporters. They're not ignorant, toothless racists. They're hardworking people, and they're struggling to take care of their own families. And we share a lot of stories about our kids and grandkids. And somehow, we as a country have to be able to find a way to see each other. One of the problems I have with the president is he exploits these differences and he accentuates these, this sense of separation at a time when what we really need is the grace and wisdom to try and find that common language. Yeah, I, um, you know, I've got an uncle who uh, voted for Donald Trump, and you, you can imagine the, um, the awkwardness of knowing that your family member voted for somebody who wanted to ban people who pray like you from this country. Um, He's one of my favorite uncles. Uh, he was the, he was the guy who took us snowmobiling in the winter. Uh, he would always drive the boat when we'd go skiing in the summer. Um, and it was a moment for me when I had to step out of my own experience of this catastrophic election and this this you know fundamentally flawed and, and broken human being who was uh, elected president and ask why why did you support him and. The fact of the matter is, is that despite the fact that he's my uncle, he and I live very different lives. And he's somebody who was a trucker his whole life. He built a, built a company, but he's watched as his own community has been decimated in an economy uh, that fundamentally has, uh, even as it's recovered, moved more and more of the wealth that's generated in it up to the top. And the people who lose are people like him, people like his neighbors, people like the folks he goes to church with. Um, and he doesn't have to worry about Muslims because he's not Muslim. Right? right. And, you know, I, I wish that all of us were big enough to say, is this good for everybody? But when you look at a, 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 a space in your life where the people around you that you see every day are suffering and you've got one candidate who's telling you that it's all in your head and another one that's telling you that really you ought to be upset, but wants you to, you know, <laughs> take on and, and, and walk a really ridiculous and crazy path with him. Um, who do you pick, right? I, I always sort of think about it as a parable between two doctors, one that tells you that your pain is not real and one that tells you it is, but you've got to drink uh, this crazy concoction that they've created. You, know, you always are going to pick the one who validates your pain. You talk about caricatures. You've spent more than half your life in the post 9-11 era. How did that event change your life and change the way people treated you because of your name, because of your faith, because of, of the color of your skin? 
on 9-11, I went from being, uh, you know, a brown kid with a funny name to being a very particular kind of brown kid with a very particular kind of funny name. And, uh, you know, for me, to be honest, it forced me to look deeply into um, the conversation that we were having both before 9-11 and after 9-11, and frankly, to like engage with my own faith in a real profound way. Um, it was painful. Uh, both the event itself, watching as people in the name of my faith killed people from my country, and at the same time watching my country respond by going out and 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 stereotyping and killing people of my faith in the name of my country, um, and being on both sides of that both times was exceedingly painful. You were a football player, I was, and you got an early indication of this. When you were on the football field shortly after the 9-11 attack. Yeah. You know, football sports for me were, were um, extremely cathartic and a space where, uh, you know, you could, you could really engage with a group of people to do something together. Um, and after 9-11, we actually didn't play the week of 9-11. All games were canceled. But the week afterwards, uh, we did play. And I remember, um, you know, I was being double teamed off play and just called names that I would, you know, frankly, would follow me on every athletic field for the rest of my athletic career. Um, and it was the first time I'd heard them in any real way. The, the thing about it is my brother's name's Osama. And uh, he, was, um, he was in elementary school at the time. And this was a source of, of really serious consternation for my family. Um, and I remember at one point, one of the opposing players uh, you know, called me Osama in, in, in the kind of way that was meant to, to denigrate me. Um, and I responded. I, you know, I, I sort of, it was the third quarter, so I'd, I'd had two quarters of this. Um, and of course the ref saw it and I, you know, I, I, I sort of socked him under his, his helmet. Uh, I got pulled from the game and I had this really interesting conversation with my coaches and, um, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that, you know, in today's day and age, I might look at and say that was, you know, you accommodated, frankly, you accommodated bias by doing this. But he said, you know, what happened? I told him, well, they've been doing this all play. The refs were seeing it, not calling it. I got frustrated and, you know, I lost control. And he said, well, look, you got to understand something. You're going to be Abdul Al-Sayed for the rest of your life. And you can either use it as excuse or you can use it as motivation. And I thought about that quite a bit. Um, and there's a, I think, a challenge that people of color you know, particularly from from deeply marginalized and uh, magnified communities like the Muslim community, um, there's a challenge we have because in a lot of ways, what we do uh, is looked at beyond our own choices, right? It's it's seen as a representation for everybody. And um, for me, it was either run away from that or embrace it. And, um, and in a lot of ways, I think I've tried to, uh, in my work, demonstrate that we have an opportunity by just embracing who we are and what we value in our collective humanity to show a different view on what makes us who we are independent of, of our faith or our names or the colors of our skin. Um, and so, you know, I took a lot away from that, uh, but also realized that so much of what we have to be doing right now is breaking down uh, the stereotypes that exist, the, the, the um, policies that we see in, in public life that are uh, further marginalizing folks, and also showing um, that even in the, the space of marginalization, there's a grace about constantly focusing on the collective rather than one's own experience or one's own, one's own frustration. This was, uh, this was sort of the uh, substance of your commencement speech at the University of Michigan, I guess 2007, is that? Yeah, 2007. One of the people who was on hand who heard it was Bill Clinton. He said, I don't want to embarrass your senior speaker, meaning you, but I wish every person in the world who believes that we are fated to have a clash of civilizations and cannot reach across the religious divides could have heard you speak today. I wish every person in the world could have heard you speak today. That's high praise. The first thing I, uh, I thought of was like, I hope my parents heard that. <laughs> uh, um, but, uh, but I yeah, they, they did. If they, they did. Um, you know, it was, it was one of those moments that you don't in the moment really appreciate the value of it. And it was, you know, very gracious for him to say. It was interesting, actually. We shared a conversation uh, after that speech. And, uh, you know, he was uh, being mobbed by, by everybody who was there. And yes. I didn't want to bother him. So I started walking out and, you know, you've met Bill Clinton and he has this uh, pretty rare ability to like look into your soul. Yes. Um, so, you know, he, he, he grabs my shoulder, we're shaking hands and he, he looks me in the eye and said, son, why are you going to medical school? <laughs> and I looked at him for a minute and, you know, the first thing that came to my mind was, well, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I'm brown and I'm Muslim. That's just what we do. <laughs> um, 
but I didn't say that. I love people. I love science. This is how I want to serve. Uh, and he looked at me and said, you know, you have a real, real gift for communicating and maybe you'll run for office someday. This was 2007. And I looked at him for a minute. <laughs> I just said, you know, Mr. President, it's really kind of you to say, I really appreciate you saying that. Uh, but, uh, I don't know if you saw my first name. There are 11 <laughs> letters in my first name and that's just my first name. And, uh, he looks at me for a minute and he didn't even deny it. He was like, that's, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the crazy thing about it was a year later, I got to watch Barack Hussein Obama run for and win the presidency. Well, what did that mean to you? It was the first time I ever saw myself at all represented in politics in any way. Um, and, you know, obviously his background is different, but, you know, he comes from a mixed household. You know, watching him do what he did and the kind of grace and, uh, and confidence with which he carried himself. Um, even in the, in the face of the kind of just deeply unfair attacks that I, at that point, become really accustomed to. Um, that was ex extremely both gratifying and, and uplifting. Um, you know, I don't agree with a lot of the things that, that came out of the administration, but I, I, cannot, I cannot thank uh, him and, and his family enough for this space that they created in our politics. Yeah, it's funny that you should say that because um, when he was considering running I remember a meeting when uh, Michelle Obama, who was, I think, fair to say, a skeptic about the whole enterprise, said, what do you think you can do that nobody else can do? And he said, well, I don't know uh, exactly how to answer that, except to say, I'm pretty sure that when I put my right arm up and take that oath, that there are millions of kids who are going to look at themselves differently. And, uh, you know, you obviously were one of them. Absolutely. Bill Clinton asked the question that I was going to ask, which is why medicine, and you answered it, but you very quickly, I mean, you went off, you became a Rhodes Scholar, you gravitated from the clinical practice of medicine over time to public health and epidemiology. Tell me about that transition. Yeah. So I'll be honest with you, you know, for me, the, the reason I wanted to be a doctor, um, and I couldn't have articulated it at that time, was... You know, I, I, my grandmother lost two babies. That's 25% of the kids that she had died before the age of one. Um, just in my, my, my father's generation alone, the infant mortality rate in my family was 25%. Um, and I could travel 12 hours to Egypt. And every time I did, I'd be traveling 10 years difference in life expectancy. Um, and I could see it in the nature of the experiences that people had. And um, the crazy thing about it, though, is that I didn't have to go all the way to Egypt to travel 10 years difference in life expectancy. I could take 25 minutes south on I-75 uh, from my suburb in Detroit uh, to you know any neighborhood in the actual city, and I'd travel the same 10-year life expectancy gap. And the, the circumstances of poverty, of marginalization, of lack of access to jobs, of lack of access to health care... Um, they were the same, whether you were in, in Alexandria, Egypt, or you were in uh, urban Detroit. And that, for me, really framed the kind of healthcare I wanted to do, which was to say, how can I be uh, a tool in making some small difference um, in access to a healthy life for people? But as I trained, um, in particular, you know, in medicine, uh, watched the institutions that I was training in and uh, and, and preparing to be a part of, um, fundamentally be a part of the problem, right? Whether it was uh, the exceedingly high cost of healthcare, the barriers that we put up for, uh, for, for people who don't have access to the system because of uh, their circumstances, uh, or it's just the way that the system is conditioned to think about people um, and to treat them, whether it's the fact that, you know, we don't really pay attention to people 99% of the time when they're outside of our clinics or hospitals, mm -hmm. uh, or it's how we uh, subtly discriminate in healthcare uh, against certain groups of people. Um, and as I trained, I realized that I was really a lot more interested in public health than I was in clinical practice. And, uh, and so I decided to take my career in that direction. I got to do a PhD in epidemiology and public health uh, at Oxford. And, um, uh, and then, you know, when I was in my fourth year of, of medical school, I, I got to take care of uh, a patient who really, I think, accentuated my frustrations with the healthcare system and realized that, you know, the kind of difference I wanted to make, I was not going to be able to make within the confines of a hospital or clinic, and that I would much rather spend my time thinking about um, people's experiences with health while they live and learn and work and pray and play uh, in the communities in which they live. I think I've, I read about this. This was a woman who you treated 
she was addicted or she she had come in uh, because she had fallen and hit her head um, in the subway in the middle of the winter, and you know she she came in inebriated. And you know if you're if it's ten o'clock in the morning and you're inebriated, that means you're likely suffering from alcoholism. Um, but the way that that she was misprocessed in the emergency room uh, really was a symptom of this if this broader I think moral rot in the way that we think about healthcare in this country. Um, you know, if you fall and you're hitting your, you hit your head, David, you, you'd get a, a CT scan almost immediately. They'd want to make sure you weren't having a brain bleed. She didn't get that. Um, and when I asked the emergency room doctor, who was only a couple of years uh, further ahead in his training than I was, why, he said, well, you know, if we admitted her, she'd be a social admin, um, which was... Meaning you know, that she wouldn't pay. That and also that we weren't going to be able to, to actually help her. Mm-hmm. And um, I ended up working with my attending physician who, who was really, you know, I had, responsible for her care. Uh, and we decided to admit her, took care of her for two weeks. And, you know, she became, for me, almost a referendum on whether or not uh, I would pursue a clinical career. Um, ended up, you know, diagnosing her with full-blown AIDS. Um, she had an actively bleeding mass in her pelvis. Uh, she had had this hypotension, which, um, you know, she'd had high blood pressure her whole life. But one of the things that HIV can do um, is infest the gland that controls your blood pressure. And that had happened to her. Uh, so she couldn't keep up a high blood pressure, you know, normal blood pressure that, that you or I would walk around with. Um, we found the only discharge facilities that would, you know, accept somebody uh, for rehab uh, who had HIV. We got her placed into, into housing that she had access to. And in the end, she decided that um, she wanted to go home with her daughter. And about two weeks later, uh, I was just getting on the subway to, um, to have uh, dinner with a friend. And I get on the subway, and she's, she's laying down on the, on the seats of the subway. And mm. actually went home that night and pulled my residency application and said, you know, I don't know that I can, I can make the difference that I want uh, as a clinician. You ran a program, I guess, at Columbia for four years that was public health related. Yeah, so I was an, I was an assistant professor uh, at Columbia. And while I was there, I, I worked in an area of scientific research that uh, that focuses on the role of systems rather than individual risk factors uh, on shaping people's health, um, and also uh, focused on uh, how we bring that kind of analysis uh, to tangible real-world problems. But again, got a little bit frustrated because you know, a lot of times in the academy, um, especially in epidemiology, which is an applied science, you know, our work doesn't matter unless it makes people healthier. Right. We were writing papers um, that would only really be read by folks who already kind of agreed with what we had to say, uh, and I, I wanted I wanted my work to, to have an impact, and, and that's ultimately why I ended up leaving academia. One of the things that you did while you were there that interested me was you wrote an article uh, criticizing celebrities like LeBron James and Beyonce uh, for promoting soft drinks that you thought contributed to childhood obesity and the general obesity problem. That's right. And did that get attention? Did that? You know, it got some attention. Unfortunately, they didn't get the attention of the, the people I wanted it to. Uh, you know, the crazy thing is LeBron James you, and I. You influenced Mayor Bloomberg, right? He... <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know that he, uh, he, he, he did exactly what I would, would have suggested. But, you know, there's something about, about you've got this. LeBron, LeBron he banned, I, we should say, Bloomberg banned, tried to ban big gulps. gulps. That's right. Uh, uh, which probably will come up again in this presidential race, which we'll talk about in a bit. Yeah. I also wrote an article, though, against the big gulp ban because I just don't think it's particularly effective, right? Mm-hmm. It's like there's this stereotype that the, the reason that soft drinks are linked to obesity is because everybody's walking around with a big gulp, right? That's not the case. It's the, it's the slow and steady, consistent drinking of, mm-hmm. uh, of sugar water, in effect. But you think about LeBron James. I mean, he and I graduated high school the same year. I've spent my whole career focused on health. In one move, if he were to just say, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to be a front man for Sprite anymore because I think Sprite uh, is poison that's making kids sick, um, that would do more for public health in America than I could do for the rest of my career. And uh, LeBron, if you're listening, um, I, I know he's of he's an inveterate Axe Files listener, so <laughs> we'll see if he takes takes you up on this. You went back to Detroit, and you became the health commissioner for Detroit at a time when Detroit had declared bankruptcy. The whole health department had what five full time employees. Yeah, talk about that experience. You spent four years uh, doing that. Yeah, I um. I, w- I was there for, for a couple of years. Um, it was one of those jobs that... Y- was it just a couple? I mean, o- only a couple of years, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it was one of those jobs that you, 
you sort of take because you don't know any better. Uh, I didn't know what I was walking into. I was 30 years old. Um, you know, I'd, I'd held these. How did it come to you? I had a friend um, that he and I were in the same fellowship program, and uh, he was at Yale Law School. Uh, had a bunch of offers to, you know, go work for white shoe law firms or uh, go and, and be a law clerk um, for, a, for, a, for a judge. And he chose to go to the city of Detroit, which was an uncommon move. And I happened to be in town, um, reached out to him and just said, you know, what made you take this, this move? And, you know, I'd love to learn more about what you're doing in public health. And I brought some CVs. Uh, he said, look, I don't, I, don't, I don't cover health, but, you know, let me just get this to some people and see what happens. A couple of weeks later, I get a call from a very gruff voice on the other end of the line, and it's the mayor of Detroit, Mike Duggan. Mike Duggan, yeah. And, uh, and he asked me if I'm interested in the public health job. And, you know, it's not like we're having a long conversation. And I say, yeah, of course I'm interested in the public health job, not knowing exactly what that job is. Um, he said, great, my, my, my scheduler will find us a time. I fly back to Detroit two weeks later. I'd spent two weeks learning everything I could about health in Detroit um, and, uh, and, and, and put together a presentation. And at the end of this sort of hour and a half lunch, uh, where I'm walking uh, Mayor Duggan through the challenges that we face in Detroit. He said, look, you got the job. I said, you know, Mr. Mayor, that's great. I just, I actually don't quite know what, job, what the job is. <laughs> he said, well, you know, health director. Um, and so, uh, you know, had to go back home and have a much more serious conversation with the person that really matters, who's my wife, Sarah. Um, who's also in medicine. She's also in medicine. She's a psychiatrist. And You guys um, met at the University of Michigan. We met in undergrad. We were actually that, you know, rare couple who uh, got married. She was 19, I was 21. Um, and had a friends who were like, "Yo, you're you're robbing the cradle." I was like, "I'm in the cradle. Like, <laughs> we're all we're all in this cradle together." Um, but we've been married now at that point for for some time. And Sarah's just an incredibly uh, giving human being who appreciated the value of the work. Um, and she had just matched into residency in New York, which is mm. where we were. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we spent a, a year apart, um, and I moved out to Detroit to take on this role of rebuilding a health department that had been shut down in 2012 when the city was facing bankruptcy. Um, you know, the same austerity measures that took away the right to self-determination from low-income black folks in Flint that led to the Flint water crisis, the consequences in Detroit were that they shut down a 185-year-old health department uh, in a city with a higher infant mortality rate than my father's native Egypt, where I told you about uh, their family's experience. And so I walked into a department with five city employees, 85 contractors in the back of the building where they pay parking tickets in Detroit. Um, and we got to work. Um, and, you know, I think had I known any better of what I was walking into, I probably wouldn't have taken the job. But I'll be honest with you, um, it, it, it was the, the most the most fulfilling and exhilarating work uh, I'd ever done because, you know, you'd have this idea of saying, look, we know that 30% of our kids who get tested for vision deficits um, aren't going to get a pair of glasses. They're, they're going to come back testing positive again next year. That has all kinds of downstream implications for their learning. And- all kinds. I mean, as a, as a, as a child of color, right, I, I know what happens when you get labeled the bad kid, right? And that, that happened to me a lot when I was a kid. Um, now, if it's because you just can't see what's on the board and you're trying to entertain yourself, there's a solution for that. Just get, get the kid a pair of glasses and all of a sudden what's happening on the board gets a little bit more interesting because you can see it. Um, and so, you know, build a program to, to provide every kid a pair of glasses. And, and that's something we could kid, do. You get 6,000 kids' glasses. That's right. Um, and, you know, I, I hope that those, that little intervention, obvious thing, uh, has has serious long-term implications for disrupting the the intergenerational poverty that we see that takes hold in communities like Detroit because we assume that you know in the in this sort of frame of political reasoning where everybody's accountable for their own poverty right that that somehow um, people are just making bad decisions when in fact uh, we as a society have often just given up on communities uh, and we fail to invest in, in in very little things that so many other communities get to take for granted that could fundamentally change the trajectory of a life. Yeah, you used it as a platform to attack the lead paint problem in Detroit. A lot of older homes with lead paint that That's had right. profound implications for kids got them to change the ordinance related to to that and retool these. The good news was that there were there were there were a community of folks inside the city who were committed uh, to taking on um, these issues and, and thinking about what we could do. And for us, you know. It, the, the, the Flint water crisis was was, was an obvious terrible uh, uh, outcome of this system of austerity imposed by the state. Um, 
but it's also left us sort of with this legacy whereby we think about lead poisoning and we think about water. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the lead poisoning in America is, is attributable to lead-based paint in homes that were built before 1978. 93% of homes in Detroit were built before 1978. And so we've got zip codes in Detroit where the prevalence of lead poisoning is threefold what it was in the city of Flint at the height of the water crisis. Um, and that's about paying attention to what happens in a home. It's, it's, it's a far slower moving, but equally disastrous consequence. And so thinking about how we systematically solve that uh, was a big part of what animated our work in the city as well. You took on the asthma issue, air pollution in the city. You did a range of things, took on the, new, the food desert problem, the absence of nutrition for kids. You used it as a very broad platform. The, the, and, and that's your orientation on these health issues. That's exactly it, right? Is, is it's easy to think about health as health care. But really, health is about all of those things that happen before somebody gets sick in the first place. And so the question we asked ourselves at the health department was, what are the things that we can do that have a, a disproportionate impact on those health outcomes that, that, that create a pathway for poverty to move from one generation to another. So whether it was uh, solving vision deficits or addressing infant mortality and preterm birth or uh, taking on lead poisoning or making sure that kids um, weren't breathing air that was poisoning them and and forcing them to miss a day of school every two weeks as persistent asthma does. Um, All of these things have knock-on effects. And so we wanted to think broad-based about it. And that's the thing about public health is it actually has has to do with all of the things that happen before we get to healthcare. Um, And so you've got to be broad-based about the interventions that you take on. As audacious as it was to take on that challenge, two years later, you decided to run for governor at the age of 33. Why? I was in my in my role in Detroit, and, and we were doing you know all kinds of work that I'm, I'm quite proud of and, and grateful I got to do uh, with a community of folks who, um, who who took it on with me. Uh, but there was a ceiling um, on what we could do because of the politics of the circumstance, right? It was impolitic to talk about uh, lead and the fact that the demolitions program in the city of Detroit was uh, was potentially poisoning kids in in the era of Flint. Um, it was in politic to talk about water shutoffs, and I found myself consistently uh, butting heads with the mayor about whether or not um, we could do work on those issues. At the same time, I'm watching as that same system of politics uh, leads to the systematic poisoning of kids in Flint. He didn't want to because he felt it would, he was trying to rebrand Detroit, and he felt these issues would just set that mission back. Exactly. Nobody wants to move their corporate headquarters into a city um, where the lead poisoning uh, prevalence is higher than it is in Flint. You must have considered, given our previous discussion, uh, the barriers to entry for a young guy named Abdul El Said. So uh, tell, me, uh, tell me how that unfolded for you and how much of a barrier was that? You walk into politics with the circumstances you're given, right? And you're constantly thinking about how to turn those challenges into strengths. Um, I knew, I mean, the reason I decided to run fundamentally was was I saw what happened in Flint. I saw what politics were keeping me from being able to do in Detroit. I watched Donald Trump get elected president. And at some point you're saying like, there's something really wrong with this. I knew that the challenges I faced as, as a 33-year-old Muslim guy named Abdul who'd never run for office before would be pretty daunting. But I also knew that I had a, a really powerful story to tell about who we are and who we ought to be, which is at core what the question of our politics are. Um, I also knew that, you know, in in the state that had become defined by the Flint water crisis in the news, um, then who better but a former health commissioner to solve it. Um, And I also knew that, you know, if we were able to go out and have an honest conversation that was driven by empathy and a conversation with folks about what was wrong, that was framed around listening to people instead of telling them, you know, about yourself, um, that a lot could get done. And I'd spent my whole life, you know, uh, in very different parts of Michigan, whether it was, you know, as the health commissioner in the city of Detroit, uh, or spending some of my summer in Montcalm County, Michigan, every, every summer, uh, that, you know, I, I knew how to listen to folks and I could understand where they were coming from. And so that's what we did, right? We built a campaign around being very, very honest about, um, about what we had heard, um, about taking the time to listen and then turning that into really thoughtful policy, uh, to solve it. And then talking about that, um, in the context of, what those policies could mean about who we are um, and how we took on took on big problems. And now a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. 
And now back to the show. You won and you lost. You won in the sense that you became, I think, a nationally recognized figure in that campaign. And within Michigan, quite a political celebrity and using your platform for these issues. You lost to Gretchen Whitmer, who's now the governor of Michigan, but by, and by a fairly substantial margin, uh, 22 points. What did you learn from the experience? I mean, what did you learn about yourself? Oh, yeah. And what did you learn about our politics? I, I sort of think about uh, running for office kind of like, um, kind of like y- y- when, when lunar modules re-enter into the atmosphere. <laughs> like all, is, all that is not part of you will be burned off. Right, and there's there's a high probability of just bouncing off and 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 never never actually getting back in. Uh, I learned a ton about myself. I I think um, a I re- I really love people, and the best parts of my day every day were the moments where I got to really just sit and listen to somebody I'd never met before, and um, and hear their story and and put it all together um, to think about the pat- broader patterns. I trained as an epidemiologist, which. You know, literally, what you do is you make patterns about disease, um, and and listening to everybody's case, being able to look folks in the eye as they talk to you about their challenges or or feel the stress in their hands as they shake your hand, um, those are unique opportunities. Most people don't get that, and I was really grateful for that. I also learned that um, that I I don't I don't compromise on my beliefs. Um, there were a lot of moments, whether it was in early conversations with consultants or, you know, folks who were like, look, you know, at the end of the day, people really like you. They just don't, you know, you're a little bit, a little bit out there. You're talking about single payer healthcare in the state of Michigan. That's absurd. Nobody's heard about that. Don't you know that Blue Cross Blue Shield is going to come at you with all their, all they've got? Well, presumably uh, labor unions were not uh, comfortable with that either, because as we've seen now, and we'll talk about this in a second, with Bernie Sanders, they negotiated for their healthcare and that's generally part of their compensation package, and they're not that eager to give up where you know Cadillac healthcare plans. Yeah, although when you sit down with folks and you talk it through beyond the the, the talking points that you know the industry puts out there, I think people really see the logic in it. And we'll, we'll talk about it a little mm-hmm. bit more. Um, but there was a space for conversation that a lot of folks didn't expect to exist, and mm-hmm. I think we generated that space. And you know, even though I'm not governor of the state of Michigan. Um, I'm really grateful that we were able to move the conversation in ways that put uh, issues on the table that forced the current governor to pay attention to them in ways that, you know, she might have had, not have had to. You ran a pretty sharp campaign uh, and you confronted her directly on some of these issues. What did you learn about that and about how to approach an opponent in a campaign? You know, it's a, it's a really uncomfortable thing, right? Because folks don't like conflict and, and, and naturally... Uh, when you're calling somebody out in public, they don't like that. Um, at the same time, though, if you're driven by an honest, substantial assessment of the circumstances, uh, I think people see that. Um, so not, also, they didn't see it as personal. I, I hope not. Um, I've got nothing personally against anybody, uh, but I, I did want to. I did want to draw the contrast about. Um, how folks have have chosen to engage in public life and uh, Gretchen Whitmer was was a figure in the Democratic establishment in Michigan. She had been a leader in the legislature, came up in a more traditional route than you had taken. You know, it strikes me just listening to your story. You said earlier I'm an iconoclast. You're someone who's never been quite patient with the institutions, the establishment, the status quo. Fair to say, absolutely. I, I will say I've, I've, institutions have been quite kind to me. And at the same time, I see how they've been unkind to so many other people. Uh, think about my cousins in Egypt, right? Just as smart, just as capable. Um, they drive cabs in Egypt. I don't, that's not my life. And a lot of that is because of opportunity. But we cannot continue to believe that the institutions that exist in America give equitable access to what they have, to everyone, even in America. And um, and that to me is an outrage and it's frustrating. And so there's this sort of implicit respect for institutions that is expected of you. Um, when I've never quite believed 
that those institutions have always served the best interests of everyone. Um, and oftentimes the folks who do wait their turn in these institutions become so inured to these institutions that they somehow perpetuate the way that these institutions exclude other people. Um, and so to me, I think institutions are deeply valuable and we have to invest in them, but we have to sometimes push against them um, because they can be a tool for the kind of exclusion um, that I think we see you know, across this country. Um, and that's exclusion across a number of different bounds, whether it's racial exclusion or it's exclusion uh, based on gender or it's exclusion based on, um, on what your parents did for a living or where you grew up. Uh, we see that everywhere. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm somewhat impatient with, with institutions um, that want to take credit for uh, for all the good things and not pay attention to maybe all the bad things. One of the people who came in and campaigned for you in that governor's race was Bernie Sanders. Echoes of whose rhetoric I can hear in your own, and you're supporting him in this campaign. I am. Yeah. So, you know there's a great deal of fear among establishment Democrats about what a Sanders candidacy would mean. And he is in a position here where... He may well be the delegate leader at the end of this process, unlikely that he'd have a majority of delegates, but he could be the delegate leader. What are they missing? Yeah. Let me split that fear into two buckets. There is the fear that is more about what happens to the institutions in which a lot of these people have power, which is far more cynical. And my sense just goes back to what I just said, which is to say, if you're afraid that Bernie Sanders or Bernie Sanders presidency means that these institutions are disempowered um, because of their role and their complicity in creating the kind of inequality and equity that we have right now, um, then that's too bad. But if your fear is that somehow Bernie can't win or that Bernie's not going Isn't to... Isn't that the fear that people are expressing? I mean, there's no doubt the first is true, that he is, uh, you know, that he is someone who's, who's challenging institutions, Wall Street in particular, but others as well. But mostly what you hear is, the ship's going down yeah. if he's at the head of it. Well, I think that part of why that's mostly what you hear is because it'd be impolitic to say the first. But I, I do think it does animate some of what you do here. Well, what about um, the second, though? But the second, I'll just say this, right? We nominated in the last go around the most institutionally decorated Democrat you could find anywhere. Um, and we lost. And we lost because what the other side, you know, not, 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 by, by their virtue, but almost by accident found, is that the broad swath of Americans have been so excluded by these institutions that we hold so dear that they decided to vote against them entirely. And if that came in the form of um, just, I hate to say it, a, a narcissist with no interest in the public good, um, then so be it. But that's what they voted for. I think we have in Bernie somebody who has taken on those institutions his entire career on behalf of the people because he recognizes uh, the inequity that they've created. And so if we think that the kind of Democrat who is going to win is somebody who is beholden to these institutions, then I just think we're missing the lesson of history. I think we're at a point right now, you look at the inequality in this country, you look at you know, the fact that unemployment may be at an all-time low, but underemployment is at an all-time high. You look at the level of student debt, you look at the inaccess to healthcare, and people are fundamentally frustrated with institutions that have locked them out. Bernie has been talking to those institutions for an extremely long time um, and talking about exactly how uh, they have been uh, misappropriated you know, for greed and for, for, for power for a few um, that cr to, to create the circumstances in which so many people find themselves. And I think that's why he's resonating. It's because he, he is saying what everybody else is thinking about the fact that they can't get access anymore. Um, and so, you know, for folks like you and I, we've been uh, lucky, but we, we've also been a part of these institutions that, uh, that nurture, but like mm -hmm. to whose exclusion? And my point is that, is that we need leadership that recognizes both the importance of institutions with a lowercase i and also realizes that in order to have them and to have them function, we need to change them so that they function for everybody, not just for a few. You say he's resonating, and there's no doubt that he is in a, as I said, a, a good position, but he got 20, about 25, about a quarter of the vote in Iowa and a quarter of the vote in uh, New Hampshire, he had got he got almost half the vote, maybe more than half. If you listen to his folks in Iowa in, in 2016, he got 60 percent of the vote in New Hampshire in 2000 and 
16, and he, he got 25%. Now, and in the national polls, he's, he's, he's about at a running, on the average, about 28%. Um, that means that three-quarters of Democrats are going elsewhere right now. How does he uh, become the candidate of a majority of Democrats here? And what happens if that 75% coalesce around another candidate? Yeah, I'll say a couple things. So, you know, obviously the, the person who wins the most votes should win the race. And that's democracy. And I think all of us agree with that. Um, it's a multipolar race. No matter whether they get the majority of delegates or not. So say Bernie Sanders gets 35% of the delegates. Uh, should he be the nominee of the Democratic Party? I, I would like to see an outcome where whoever wins the plurality of delegates wins the race, right? Um to, to your point, right, it, it's a multipolar race. There are more people in the field. And, you know, a lot of the field has taken uh, a lot of, 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 of the, the insights of Bernie's 2016 run uh, and tried to incorporate them, of course, without the same kind of, you know, integrity that comes with having talked about them for 50 years. Um, but you're going to see some movement of folks some of them because of that. haven't been around for 50 years. True. Fair enough. I, I say that as somebody who's not been around for 50 years. <laughs> but, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, the consistency in having said the same thing over and over again is a unique thing in America. American politics. We don't see that very often. Uh, it's no, easy. he's authentic. There's no no doubt about it. Do you have any concern? I mean, you look at these polls and they say the word socialist actually is a big, probably with your relatives, uh, for example, it has a, a heavy negative uh, impact. You're a proponent of Medicare for all, but the, the rapid deconstruction of private insurance and people having to losing their ability to choose it is something that polls very negatively. The decriminalization of the border is something that polls uh, broadly uh, negatively. Though, aren't those the things that uh, people are worried about uh, with a Sanders candidacy? Let me let me uh, let me let me let me speak to that in a couple ways. Um, I understand that there's a theoretical question about how. Uh, the 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 community of voters will think about these issues that haven't been tested in American politics. But there's a real question, right, that's been answered about how the community of voters thinks about somebody who is unwilling to engage seriously with the fundamental challenges of our time around inaccess to healthcare, et cetera. And so we had that candidate in 2016 right? We didn't win the election. So I worry a little bit, right, about this idea of playing this hypothetical mm -hmm. out versus playing the reality of what we just did last last cycle out. I also think that, you know, there's this, um, there's this, this notion that doing what every other high-income country in uh, the world has done, right, is somehow uh, tantamount to some ideological... But most of them have some form of private insurance. I mean, it's a single-payer system, but it's a private... There is private insurance involved. And and, and frankly, in, in both Medicare for All bills that have been proposed, there would be some system of private insurance that would be allowed. It's just not relying on private insurance, right, to provide the bulk of health care mm -hmm. for everyone. That is critically failing us. And it's not just that we have 10% of the population that's uncovered at all. It's that even for folks who do have healthcare coverage, they're being smacked on the back end, right, with bills for something that they already paid for in the first place and thought it would be there, right? The, the, the operative word in insurance is sure. And if you're not sure that you're going to be taken care of financially, right, for having paid in your premiums, I don't know what this thing is doing in the first place for folks. And also the interesting thing about the polling that I just think is really worth clearing up is that, you know, you pointed to this idea that people are worried if and when they lose their health insurance choice. But, you know, you and I both know how that works, right? You get an email from your employer at some point in the year saying that you have to pick between, you know, two or three equally uh, difficult to understand plans, Right that are based on some outcome in the future about how much you're paying in premium and how much you're paying in deductible. That's not really a choice, right? right? What the choice is that people care about is what doctor you can go see. And the interesting thing about it is, if you look at the polling, right, Kaiser Family Foundation polling, when people are told, right, that 
they will be able to see any doctor that they want, which is what would happen in a single payer program because there is no insurance company telling you who you can see and can't see. In fact, in fact, the polling shows that preferences for Medicare for all go up even above and beyond, right? The initial, do you support single payer healthcare? Do you support Medicare for all? Um, and so people know, right? When when you do talk to them and they say, listen, you're going to be able to keep the choice in doctor, yeah. they like Medicare for all better. If they if they believe that, and we have a big gulf of trust that is is a problem. Say he he gets uh, 30, 35%, someone gets something approaching that, but he's edged them out. Uh, and the convention turns to someone other than him, turns to that second place candidate. What What is the impact of that in your view? I, just, I think that would be a devastating outcome for the party. I, I think if we if we do this under, uh, again, under, under an exclusionary roof, uh, where a bunch of folks get together and decide who the nominee is, despite having uh, created or, or gone through a democratic process, or at least the process we all agreed upon uh, at the beginning. And we select a nominee who is not elected by the people uh, per the rules of the game. I worry a lot about that. And but you know what they, what they would say in response is the rules of the game say you need 1,991 delegates. If you get 1,200 delegates, you haven't achieve the nomination by the rules of the game. Sure. I, I also really, really worry if the, the, that nominee ends up being somebody who, uh, who was, was nominated by dint of spending, you know, two to three billion dollars to get themselves nominated. All right, let me go through the candidates and see who you might be referring <laughs> to here. So Michael Bloomberg is, is the, obviously he spent 400 million on television uh, to date, as many of my contemporaries in political consulting complained to me. We all got out of the business too soon, apparently. <laughs> what would the Bernie community, of which you are part, the Bernie movement? Right. Uh, they don't like Bernie bros, but uh, let, let's just call it the Bernie community. Yes. What would they do if Bloomberg were the nominee of the party? You know, I think the bigger question, honestly, is what happens when Bernie's the nominee? What does yeah, but that wasn't my question? Oh, I understand. I understand. Okay. But I, I think I think if if I'm going to answer yours, then I'd, I'd like okay, to answer right. a little bit. Well, about you answer the other. yours, and I'll you answer uh, mine, and I'll answer yours. Deal, deal. deal. Um, I I I think if he won it by by plurality of votes, I think you know I, I would say that that's that's the rules of the game, and he won it. Fair and square is a different story, right? Spending that that kind of money, uh, I, I don't know that that's entirely fair, and that's partially because the rules of the game tend to be rigged, but that's the rules of the game we agreed upon. Uh -huh. um, if it happens that Bernie goes into a convention and he is leading in the delegate count um, and he's not the nominee, I can't speak for everybody. I would, I would say though, that for all of those folks who worked so hard to make sure that their nominee uh, won in vote totals, which is how democracy works, I worry about whether or not they'd been disenfranchised. And like, that is a concern that we all as Democrats ought to have. Um, but the reason that I think that... Would the, you support the nominee of the party? We had to be Donald Trump. Look, I always. Um, at the end of the day, I have serious issues with Michael Bloomberg and uh, for, for many, many reasons. Um, one of which is that I lived in New York while he was mayor and I got stopped and frisked because I walked through the world as a young brown guy. Um, and, and then, you know, at a, at a, he spoke at the Soros Fellowship for New Americans uh, annual meeting and... Uh, I asked him specifically about his policies and his response showed a level of disinterest in the sheer humanity of people uh, whose constitutional rights he was taking away. I worry a lot about electing that person president. That being said, the clear and present danger of Donald Trump as president, um, I think is something that I will, no matter what happens, vote against. Um, this is a man who, uh, who goes after fundamental rights uh, of people in ways um, that defile our democracy and he needs to be beaten. So yes, um, uh, you know, I, th I think there is a consensus in, in you know, all the communities that we have to beat Donald Trump and uh, everything that we've been hearing from, from Bernie Sanders has been so focused on beating Donald Trump. In fact, he's probably the person who talks most yeah, uh, about beating Donald Trump. And so, but, but to, to answer the other question, right, which is I worry a lot about what happens. What is the impetus um, that allows our party leaders to look at a plurality of voters going one way and then make a decision, right, to deny that person the nomination. And also what happens if 
if and when Bernie Sanders just wins it fair and square, takes the majority of delegates, um, will will the the rest of the party come along? Mm-hmm. That that's really I think that's the big question we have to be answering right now because um, we saw what happened in 2016 and and everybody uh, points to a few folks who. Um, uh, who, who didn't vote for, for Hillary, but I'll tell you as a Bernie supporter, I, I definitely did. And everybody I know did. Um, I wonder though, right. You, you have a lot of folks, uh, in the party, you know, when, when Bernie Sanders is the nominee, are they going to come along? Are they going to work hard for Bernie Sanders? Are they going to make sure that they're knocking doors, spending, uh, their money and their time and their resources to do it? I, I hope that no matter who the nominee is, that all of us are as committed to beating Donald Trump as I know Bernie Sanders is. Um, and that's, I think, an equally valid question on either side uh, of the party right now. We could talk about this for another hour, and maybe we will sometime. I hope so. Uh, Abdul, it's, it's, it's good to be with you. Thank you again for being here at the Institute of Politics. And uh, we look forward to, I presume that your elective career or your quest for elective office is not over, that there may be other opportunities in the future. So we look forward to, uh, to seeing what you do. I, I, I really appreciate that. It's been great to spend some time here. Uh, really enjoyed access to the students and the Institute. Uh, I've learned a lot and um, you know, really grateful for your leadership throughout, uh, throughout the past uh, decade plus in our politics. And you know, I look forward, I hope that this is uh, the first in a long, uh, long continuous conversation you about- You can count, count on that, good. count Thank on you. that. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.